Hello, I'm Joanna Lumley. I'm in my garden in London, and I'm walking down the garden path to the music room. In there, I'll find my husband, the composer and conductor, Stephen Barlow. Now, we've been married almost 40 years, and I think, however long you've been with someone, you have questions that you'd like to ask your partner. So this podcast is my chance to ask Stephen the questions I've always wanted to ask him about one of his and my greatest passions, classical music. Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. Hello, Maestro. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Joanna and the Maestro, when it is Joanna and the Maestro and Anna Lapwood. Anna, welcome. It's so wonderful of you to join us. Thank you very much indeed. Oh, thank you for having me. Joanna, I actually have met you once before, and this is one of my favourite stories. You will you will not know because it was a, like years ago mm. when I had just started out and was very, very shy. And it was, at, do you remember the 16 did the book launch? Yeah. A New Heaven, yeah. the Harry Christopher's. Harry's book, yeah. Harry's book, yeah. So we're, I was at, at that launch and I had I wasn't used to the whole sort of like mingling and I was really shy. So I went and stood by the books just like pretending that I was doing something important because I didn't want people to think I had no one to talk to. And I must have done that job very well because you came up to me and you said, oh, could I buy one of these books? And I panicked because I thought, well, I can't say no. And so I said yes and figured out how to work the chip and pin machine. You did not. I did. I, and so I sold you a book. And then in the time it took to do that, a queue had formed behind you. And I'm <laughs> you not You were joking. there for the rest of the evening. I sold 10 more books. <laughs> I was there too. What a oh, little one! Well, you looked so confident. So, no matter what turmoil was going on inside you, you oh. obviously exuded some sort of sense of absolute approachability and confidence. <laughs> That's, it's quite a story. Did we buy two? I think we did. Stevie, I'm going to pass this over to you because you and Good Anna grief. share the great gorgeousness of being well organ. <laughs> what organ? O- organists, organ scholars, organ maestri. Yeah, players of the organ rather than organ obsessives, I imagine. <laughs> I like that you feel we need to make that distinction. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I do. I, I absolutely loved it. And the organ still remains for me an incredibly exciting idea. I think there are very few people who encounter the instrument and get to play it who don't sort of fall in love with it and think this is extraordinary it's just like a toy box and you have so many different colors yeah. and sounds and you get to play the building i mean it's a pretty fun thing and every single instrument is radically different mm. i mean it's not like a soloist going around the world when you say what would you like a steinway or a blutner or a because it's a totally different world every single time yeah i think you get quite used to having to adapt repertoire to suit the instrument you're on so I've done concerts where I've been missing the top couple of notes and I've had to Mm -hmm. suddenly shift things down the octave. And like from a muscle memory perspective, that's something that other instrumentalists just don't have to deal with in the same way. But it's part of what makes it fun as well, I think, because you are never going to give the same performance twice on the organ. But this is an interesting one, isn't it? Organists actually have a real problem about finding somewhere to practice. And of of course, (laughs) you've been given fantastic access during the night hours to work on the Albert Hall organ. But it's a problem. It was always a problem finding the right time. I mean, in Canterbury, Mm. where I was at school, 
I was given the key to the cathedral so that I could go in and spend a couple of hours on the cathedral organ totally alone, and that was rather wonderful. But if I hadn't had that, there wouldn't have been a proper instrument to work on at all. Anna, how did you start? What was the first organ you played, and who was the one who said you should be playing the organ? It was my mum. It, it was quite late, actually. So I'd, be, I'd taken up so many different instruments as a kid because I just loved experimenting and transferring pieces from instrument to instrument. So I was a pianist and a harpist first and foremost. And then in my teens, my mum turned around to me one day and said, you should take up the organ. And I was a bit of a teenager, I think, and basically said to her, oh, don't be ridiculous, mum. I'm a harpist. I'm not going to play the organ. It's a silly instrument. But my dad was a school chaplain and so I did have access to an organ. And she said, well, did you know that organ scholars at Oxford and Cambridge get grand pianos in their college rooms? And I, as a pianist at that stage, was like, hang on. Now, you're, Stephen, you're, you're flinching. You didn't get a grand piano, did you? No. I didn't get one either. <laughs> of course not. Well, she, she lured me in with this idea of the grand piano. And I took it up basically just because I wanted that in my college room. But then the more I kind of immersed myself in that world, the more I fell in love with it and realised it's so much more than just being an organist. It's linking you in with the choral world and introducing you to this whole other kind of area of music that I hadn't encountered before. And do you still play your harp? My harp is sitting in the college chapel, looking very, very lonely. And every now and then I will sit down and play. But it's, it's a really difficult thing choosing to give up an instrument. Or choosing to prioritise a different instrument yeah, because it, it feels like you're kind of cutting off a limb almost. Mm -hmm. And when you do try and come back to it, like the, the muscle memory is gone, but also on the harp, you have calluses that build up and they've completely disappeared. So I can't play for more than about 10 minutes without getting very sore fingers. So, yes, I do That's mourn right. it a little bit. but Yeah, you miss life. it. You I miss ought it. to know this, but is there on the organ... A harp stop, as it were. <laughs> you know what? There, there is, particularly on some of the really big American instruments where you do have all these different orchestral colours. And there are, yes, there are all sorts of harps, glockenspiels. On the Albert Hall, there's a glockenspiel and tubular bells and a bass drum. I think I read somewhere that you were also in the National Youth Orchestra. Was that harp? That was harp. So I was principal harp for two years mm. and then came back for a year, actually. So just after I left, when I went to university, they said, oh, we've got a concert that needs some orchestral piano. Could you come back and do it? And I said, oh, yeah, fine. Great. What's the music? And they said, oh, it's um, it's Petrushka by Stravinsky, uh, which is an incredible piece of music, but with a fiendish piano part. Fabulous. And but my God. And I, so at this stage, I was not really a pianist. I had very much moved to organ and I did not know what I was letting myself in for. Mm -hmm. It's this, it's basically like a piano concerto that just comes out yeah. of the orchestra yeah. every now and then. And we were doing it live at the proms and this music arrived and I went, oh my gosh. And I just had to sit and practice and practice and practice and practice every day, like just blitzing this repertoire for, for months. I think we were very lucky. I mean, we had Vasily Petrenko, we had Edward Gardner. And I remember Ed Gardner was conducting Petrushka and he knew that I was bricking it. I was so scared. And he was brilliant. He just said, you know what? You just do that cadenza. I will catch you. Don't worry about looking at me. You just do it. And to have someone put that kind of trust in you and the understanding that performing is a stressful thing and it, sometimes a little bit of kindness goes a really long way.
there was one other piece that I remember quite vividly. I think it was the same year as the Petrushka. Uh, we were doing Lutoslawski's Concerto for Orchestra, which is a piece that I did not know at all until that course. And I now adore it. And I still listen to it years later. And I was playing Celeste. And the Celeste part in, I think it's the first movement, at the end, you just play the same note over and over again with the same rhythm for something like 150 bars. And I remember the first time we ran it through and I was like, oh, it's fine, it's easy. But then it changes in the last bar and you have to remember to skip a beat. And I obviously got lost within about 10 bars and was just hitting this note going, please tell me he's going to look at me. Please tell me. And the fear in my eyes as I was just staring at him. And luckily he did. He showed me what it was going to be. (laughs) Rescued. So you have a pretty multifaceted life now, don't you, of presenting and uh, commentating on events, you know, the competitions that you were an adjudicator with and your job at Pembroke. Now, the college must be quite amenable to your adjusting things, presumably, because it's good for them as well. But you're covering a lot of ground, aren't you? And you must spend some time away. I do. Yeah. So when I first started at Pembroke, I mean, I I was 21. I was fresh out of university. I was very much learning how this whole industry world worked. And I was very lucky that they took a huge risk in, in appointing me. And when I was first appointed, it was eight hours a week. It was basically like, there's a, there's a choir, there's kind of do what you like. And I turned up and I think I actually started doing a master's at the same time because mm-hmm. I thought, oh, eight hours, that's nothing. Mm-hmm. But as is so often the case in any job in uh, music or, or the arts more generally, it was not eight hours a week. And I realised within about two weeks that there was a huge amount of potential to grow the music here and turn it into something really quite exciting. So I introduced a choir, a girls' choir for girls age 11 to 18 to give them the sort of chorister experience. And I've basically just been kind of slowly building it up and up and up. And they have just been fantastic. They basically say, if you can find the funding to make this happen, do what you like, obviously within reason. But they also are really supportive of me going off and doing other things because I think they recognise it helps bring musicians to the college. And we're now getting people coming to the college, applying to the college because they want to do music with the choir or whatever it is. And we're also getting girl choristers who I've taught now from the age of 11, 12, who are finally coming into the college as undergraduates. So this is the first year where that's happened. So I've seen them all the way through and then they apply to Pembroke and end up getting a place and come and join the chapel choir. So yeah, you realise you're then with them for like, eight, nine years of their lives, which is kind of terrifying. Anna, it sounds odd to have to say this nowadays, but has there been a difference in the approach or the acceptance of women in music, particularly as organists, obviously, but I know from being married to Stephen, the difficulties of having introducing girls into the top flight choirs, because they ever just said, it's always been boys, it's been boys, so it should be boys and men. Has that been difficult as well? 
as an organist? I mean, did people want you to kind of be a semi-man, if you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a thing. I, uh, there's the Society of Women Organists, which has been set up specifically to kind of combat this and try and adjust the gender balance. And they were doing some stats a couple of years ago and went through one of the sort of main lists of organ recitals across the UK. And it was 8% of them were given by women. So clearly, like, there is a problem or has been a problem. And it's something that I'm fighting really hard to sort out or help sort out amongst so many other amazing people. Sarah McDonald, who's also a director of music here. And it's just trying to make young women realise that it's a place that they definitely belong. And it, it, it's it's not this kind of exclusive club in any way. It's something that anyone can do. So we run an organ experience for girls every year. I think the girls' choirs really help because so often people come to the organ having been a chorister. And if they haven't had the opportunity to be a chorister, why would they necessarily know that it was an instrument they could do? Of course, job opportunities for organists. You know the thing about cathedral organists. I mean, if you get a job that's halfway decent, then you probably feel that you've got to stay there a very long time because, it, it, you know, the triangle gets incredibly mm. pointy. You, but you, something, Anna, that's really concerned me because I've stayed closely associated with Canterbury because I was a chorister there as well as at King's, is now the, let me put it this way, it, it's an extreme difficulty to persuade parents to put boys up for choristerships. This is, is something that basically one can accommodate by interesting more girls, and that's exactly what's happened at Canterbury. A girls' choir in, in their teens and down the road, hopefully, more girl choristers. Because, of course, there are very few cathedrals that went that far. It's a real problem. I'm not sure there's a real solution to persuading parents to put forward their boys for choristerships unless the system of boarding can change. And then, of course, you mm. land up not being able to recruit from, if you're in Canterbury, then parents are really not going to be able to apply from Cumberland, you know. It's so difficult. And I think it's a conversation that it can frustrate me a little bit because often when it's sort of debated in the media, it can be simplified a lot. And it's like, oh, we need to make this completely equal. And actually, it's not as simple as that because the, the boys' voices break obviously much earlier. But also, if you look anywhere outside the choral world, i.e. outside cathedrals and college chapels, the gender balance is so skewed in the other direction. If you look at most primary school choirs or certainly secondary school choirs, you could look at a choir of 25 people and have one boy. Mm. And so I think making sure that we're safeguarding those opportunities for the boys is really important. And as you say, boarding does seem to be increasingly a barrier. I used to work in the boarding house at King's and I used to tuck the kids in and ride around on scooters with them. And they have an incredible time. But you do see that for a seven-year-old, boarding is its tough. It's really, really tough. And so I think... The places that perhaps are going to have the most success might be the ones where boarding is an option but not compulsory. So local parents can just bring their child in every morning for the chorister rehearsal. It's a big commitment for the parents, but it means they get to keep their child at home. But then, as you say, kids from further afield can still have the, the boarding experience if that's what they need. Rather like you, I didn't start playing the organ until our teens, but that was a stricture. 
of Alan Wicks, who was organist at Canterbury and a great hero, really, for all of us who were on them. But he said, certainly not until you're 13, because underlying that was you need the pianistic technique because, of course, the organ is touchless, mm. where a, and a piano is a percussion instrument, I know, but it's got, it's got touch and phrasing. Phrasing as an organist is a totally different kettle of fish. It's a completely different description of how you do it. I once said to Alan Riddart, the composer who was listening to what I was going to play in a, in a recital there in Kingsweek, the big festival, I think it was Rega, and I stopped and said, so, how's it going, you know? And he said, yeah, it needs more phrasing. Mm. And, and I, out of my mouth came, but for Christ's sake, that's different from, you know, I can't phrase the way I do when I sing or, uh, you know, I play the piano. It is a different world. So what I really mean by that is when you go onto the organ, if you haven't got the musical background and the technique as a pianist, you're really sort of sidestepping the musical way in. Interesting. Okay, so... You don't agree. <laughs> oh, I don't know if I do. So there, there, there are debates about this, and I know a lot of people say you have to have grade five piano before you start the organ. But actually, I've seen increasingly that someone who is a fantastic pianist, when they sit down and start the organ... They feel so stifled. Well, for me, it was my experience was that my most natural form of expression was suddenly gagged, basically, because I just felt like I could not make music at the instrument. And I nearly gave up because of that. And I've watched many people nearly give up because they feel like, but I've done all this work and I've gone backwards. And I think actually, for some people, it works better for them if they are learning both at the same time struggling at the same kind of pace on both instruments as opposed to feeling like they've got used to running I don't know a marathon and suddenly they're back forced to run only 5k like I think for some people that can be a, a massive barrier to actually taking it further and, and pushing through that hard bit that we all have to go through on the organ. Has it become your favourite instrument now? It has. It has. And I say that, I mean, I, I almost feel guilty saying that. It's like the harp <laughs> will hear me. And, but it, I, there's something about the harp which was, it's very personal. I mean, you're wrapped around the instrument and you're making music with your entire body. And I think at first when I was playing the organ and I was told, oh, you have to stay very still, all of this stuff, it felt so unmusical to me. But now, I mean, possibly going against what some of my teachers have told me, I play it almost like it's a harp. And I feel like I've managed to kind of pull in the different aspects of my harp playing, my piano playing into playing the organ. And I just, I think the thing I love most about it is being able to surprise people with it. So if they come to a concert at the Albert Hall where they're not expecting to hear it, and then suddenly you're shaking the entire building and they're like, what? Mm -hmm. Where's that coming from? And then see me yeah. and they're like, but you're tiny. It's <laughs> what I get all the time. There's something about that which it just it never gets old. Is size important, as it would say? I mean, to <laughs> organs around the world that you would have played, Anna, there must be some which are kind of geared for a chap who's probably five foot ten. And you're titchy wee, you know. You know, there is a big thing at the moment about adjustable organ benches because <laughs> a lot of organs don't have adjustable benches. And I'm I'm five foot three. Uh, so yeah, if you are tilted on the edge of the bench and you're kind of like on your 
like the back of your bum and that's the only thing with any contact to anything it's impossible to do like peddling let alone musical peddling so yeah at the moment there's a big campaign to try and make sure everywhere has adjustable organ benches not not just for short people but also for those very tall people who really struggle otherwise it is a problem but you can't narrow the pedal board so there's you know the v dot toccata the double octaves it's hardly an inactive <laughs> instrument to play and, there, you know, but, yeah one hand one hand up here for the solo and down here for the positive or whatever this is something that people why when they see someone playing the organ it has a real fascination because it's so athletic and coordination. A couple of years ago, I wrote an organ transcription of Britain's four sea interludes and the final movement of that storm. You are just flying all over the keyboards and sometimes you're having to kind of play three three keyboards at once with your feet as well. Uh, and it really is just like this display of acrobatics. Mm. And I'm so always really grateful that there's not like a camera on my face because <laughs> you end up kind of like, you know, when you put mascara on, it's the same kind of like, face that just comes out because it's just trying to make sure you don't fall off and yeah it keeps things exciting Just to remind you, if you want to get in touch with us on the programme, do email hello at joannaandthemaestro.com and we'd love to hear from you. We really would. We're fed up with the sound of our own voices and we just want to hear your sweet voices. Well, obviously, I'll be reading them out, so it'll be my voice again. But all the problems and ideas and compliments and, and questions you have, I shall put to the maestro himself, maestro Stephen Barlow. All right, maestro, take it away. What I wanted to say was you appear to be doing something very successfully, which is that most organists really came through the cathedral tradition as choristers. And, of course, you had full experience of the capabilities of the organ. By the time, you know, I took it up at 13, I just couldn't wait to find and repeat and then invent that process from an experience. So this idea of actually broadening the organ's appeal outside that tradition is a good one. It's got to be a good one. It's so important. I think it's making people realise that the organ exists outside of churches because the reality is society is becoming increasingly secular Mm. and some people just don't feel comfortable going into a church for whatever reason. And actually, they don't have to. There are so many organs in different places. Also, they are totally welcome in a church, even if they don't feel like it's a place that they might belong. Uh, And so it's, I think, partly about where you present it to them, like social media, things like that. It's also about repertoire. And one of the things I've loved in the last couple of years is kind of just pushing my repertoire ideas out as like wackily and weirdly as I can, taking film music and writing organ transcriptions, doing ridiculous collaborations. So I did Ministry of Sound last week, which was like nothing that I ever thought I would be doing a couple of years ago, but played the beginning of the Bach Toccata in D minor. And then that went straight into Faithless Insomnia. The chord progression actually works really, really well with Insomnia, which is also kind of an iconic 
classic in its own right. And the moment that it transitioned from one to the other and the crowd realised what was happening with this laser show going at the same time, the roar that came out of it was like the loudest thing I have ever heard. Forgive me for the more purists in us. You you must have a place in your heart for some of the rather wonderful standard organ repertoire. You know, Bach is a given, but Mendelssohn sonatas. I mean, it, hardly anybody knows that it, that he wrote wonderful sonatas. And then Rheinberger and Rager. Rager is extraordinary music. And of course, for me, Messiaen was was everything because Alan Wicks, of course, was a real innovator in his recitaling with Messiaen in the very early days. But how about you? All of that. I also, at the moment, I'm going through a bit of a Derufle phase. At the moment, I'm learning the Prelude and Fugue on a theme of Alain. Yeah. Uh, which is just such exciting music. The energy of the prelude. It's just driving all the way through with this kind of motor perpetuo uh, quavers all the way through, just building up and up and up. And then the fugue is sort of the opposite in a way in that it's much more stately, but towards the very, very end of the piece, things start to get more animated. And the final page, it just feels like you can't get any louder, you can't get any grander, you can't get any more emotionally intense, but it keeps going that step further. And I think the thing I uh, keep finding now is I'll start learning something like that, real organ music, Mm. and I'll keep seeing similarities with other pieces that I'm playing which are not from the classical canon. So a bit of film music or whatever it is. And I love then pointing that out in whatever forum I can to be like, oh, you love this bit of Hans Zimmer. Go and listen to that Derufle. And just trying to like find as many different kind of ways in as possible, as many channels to take people to that music. In 10 years' time, where do you want to be? <laughs> oh, my mum asks me this question all the time. She's like, what's your five-year plan? <laughs> I think the simple answer is I just do not know. The, the biggest thing I've learned from the last few years is that you can't predict this, a career in music. So 
any given day, something might come along, some random opportunity, and you have the choice whether you take it or not. And sometimes you might think, oh, I'm not quite sure, but it ends up launching a whole myriad of other opportunities off that one. And that can take you in a different direction. And I just hope I'll be able to keep that freedom to experiment and maybe make a couple of wrong decisions, come back. I don't know. It's just about trying to stay open and use that kind of open-mindedness to bring more people to the instrument. But I really don't know what that is going to look like. I mean, I hope I'm still at Pembroke. I hope I'm still giving organ recitals. I hope I'm still working at the Albert Hall, but I don't know. Yes, you see, you have such a lovely broad canvas of things that you're involved with. My question really was just hinting at, is it possible that you will get more focused on pure performing because you're covering a lot of teaching and a lot of evangelism, really, and campaigning. I mean, at the moment, it's satisfying, I believe, and you're, you're still rather excited that there's all these different things coming in. So that's the thing, really. Do you but think... Was this a question, Maestro? Yes, you've, it is. Literally <laughs> you've literally said... Um, I am a psychiatrist. I'm <laughs> it's fine. It's, my, it's, it's, my... it's a really... It's a good, it's a good point. Yeah, I thought so. <laughs> no, I, I, I understand. I mean, I think a lot of people keep saying to me, right, when are you going to choose? When are you going to, like, mm-hmm. focus? Everybody wants a specialist. Everybody wants people to settle down. When are you going to settle down, Anna? That's what people are saying. You, you can do everything, but when are you going to settle down? I think you should settle up. I think you should go on until you literally explode because you're so talented and you've got this extraordinary gift of being able to communicate with people. So you not only can do it, you can talk about it and attract people and influence people. And it's madly important to be able to do these things. And I just wonder whether you compose, obviously, but do you compose, for instance, do you compose for film music and things like this? Do people ask you for this? Well, you know, I used to compose all the time. It was, uh, I would sit at the piano and just write and write and write. And then when I went to university, I was basically told that my knowledge of harmony wasn't good enough. Mm -hmm. And so my composition lessons were stopped. And I stopped composing as a result because I thought, oh, I can't do it. And I've come back to it recently. And it's, it's only, it's for fun. It's never kind of for a commission or anything. It's just when I'll sit down and something will come out. And I think, yeah, a part of my brain thinks, oh, wouldn't it be lovely to do film music as a second career? It's what I wanted to do as a kid. That was my kind of career goal. But I think in terms of the whole, like, the focusing thing, it's something, it's so common in the classical world in particular. I mean, I, I was told from the age of, seven if you want to be a musician you need to focus now and I rejected that at that age I was a goody two-shoes child but I rejected that premise and I was like that's not me that's not who I am as a musician for me it's all about breadth and that hasn't really gone away I think I love performing I'm not the best organist in the world by any stretch of the imagination. I pretty, love pretty darn close. No, but I but seriously, like there there are so many phenomenal technicians who who can can play all this repertoire so extraordinarily well. And what I love is doing the performing as a bit of who I am. But I wouldn't be me without coming back to Pembroke and working with the girls' choir and helping people right at the start of their musical journeys and having that breadth. I think it, it, it feels like, at least for now, it, it is who I am and I can't, can't change that. We don't want you to change it, do we, Maestro? No, no, no we absolutely don't. not. Breadth, absolutely. Anna, 
we've got to go. But what we love to say, first of all, before we say not goodbye, but arrivederci, is could we play ourselves out of this little podcast with something? I'd love it if it was something that you'd recorded that you'd like us to play us out with. Oh, okay. I think there's a really, really cool piece by this young Armenian composer, Christina Arakelian, and it's called Dreamland. Uh, It's on the album that I've just released. And it was a piece that I first heard her play at a concert raising money for uh, Ukrainian refugees. So it was her and a Ukrainian soprano whose brother and parents were still in Ukraine at the time. And it it was shortly after the war had broken out. And in the middle of this concert, Christina sat down at the piano and played this piece. And it was that moment that we all have in concerts sometimes where it's like the energy in the room just suddenly shifts and everyone kind of starts like breathing together mm. and gets like it almost suspended into this heightened emotional state. And it happened in that piece and everyone was in tears. And so I spoke to Christina and said, could I write an organ version? And she is amazing and was like, yes, please, please, please write it. And whenever I play it, I just think back to that concert and the sort of reminder of the power of music to give you a shared emotional experience and how powerful that can be. Anna Lapwood, thank you so much. And will you introduce the piece now? Yes, this is Dreamland by Christina Arikelian. You've been listening to Joanna and the Maestro, a cup and nozzle, burning bright productions and Bauer media show. It's presented by me, Joanna Lumley, and my husband, Stephen Barlow. Our executive producers are Matt Everett, Graham Hodge and Clive Tullow. The show is produced and edited by Hunter Charlton and mix and mastering is by David Bloor. Our head of production is Rebecca Mills. Our production manager is Sarah Anderson. And our production coordinator is Maxim Taylor. All music for the intros is supplied courtesy of Naxos Music UK. In this episode, you heard the following music. Petrushka Part 1, The Shrove Tide Fair, written by Igor Stravinsky and performed by the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra and Peter Donoghue, conducted by Sir Simon Rattle. The publisher was Fortin Editions and Hawks and Son. The record label was a Warner Classics release. Concerto for Orchestra 1, Entrada, written by Vitol Lutislawski. Performed by the American Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Leon Botstein. The record label was American Symphony Orchestra. 4C Interludes, Opus 33A, Storm, written by Benjamin Britten and performed by the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra. The publisher was Hawks and Son, and the record label was Naxos. Toccata in Fugue in D Minor, written by Johann Sebastian Bach and performed by Anna Lapwood. And the recording you heard was made by Sean Kennedy at the Royal Albert Hall in 2023. Insomnia, written by Faithless and performed by Anna Lapwood and Faithless. The publisher was Champion Management and Music Limited, BMG Rights Management UK and Warner Chappelle Music Limited.
the record label was Sony Music Entertainment, and the recording you heard was made by Sean Kennedy at the Royal Albert Hall in 2023. Prelude et Fugue d'Alain, written by Maurice de Rouflet and performed by Sir Stephen Cleobury. The publisher was G Recordi & Co, and the record label was Decca Music Group Limited. Dreamland, transcribed for organ, written by Christina Arakelian and performed by Anna Lapwood. The record label was Sony Classical, a label of Sony Music Entertainment.